There is a lot of rhetoric around family defined as very heteronormative structure, a lot of work around family unification, and that's great, and that's very important work, but also it leaves outside trans lives and queer lives and their experience, which is most of the time running away from their families and societies where they were raised. Hundreds of thousands of people are applying for asylum in the United States. Much of the social justice work around immigrants detained at the border focuses on reunifying families. Today, we'll hear about an organization trying to protect and empower another group, a group they say gets lost in the immigration debate, detainees who are LGBTQ and HIV positive. I'm Monica Sandreski, and this is In Between Places. who are LGBTQ are often survivors of brutal violence, criminalization, and human trafficking. Many flee to the United States for safety, but they're vulnerable in immigration detention centers in the U.S. Detention can be extremely dangerous and traumatic for people who are LGBTQ. Higher levels of rape, assault, shaming. There's only one detention center in the U.S. with a facility for people who are transgender, and it only has capacity for 60 people. Five years ago, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement issued guidelines aimed at protecting people who are queer. Still, a report from Human Rights Watch shows that many trans women have been housed with men or placed in solitary confinement for their protection, when in reality it's detrimental to mental health. Right now, there are more than 200,000 LGBTQ immigrants who are undocumented living in the U.S. Many face violence and criminalization if they're deported. That's where the Queer Detainees Empowerment Project comes in. QDEP works with detainees from Latin America, West Africa, and the Caribbean in U.S. detention centers in order to provide emotional, psychological, and legal support throughout the process of detention and release. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Jan Stanovich, and I'm co-director of direct services at the Queer Detainee Empowerment Project. Jan Sanovich lives in New York City and used to be undocumented himself. He says there are many organizations committed to helping immigrants, but few are dedicated specifically to supporting people who are LGBTQ and HIV positive. The way the immigrant rights movement shapes their narrative, it's very heteronormative. So uh, there is a lot of rhetoric around family defined as a very heteronormative structure, a lot of work around family unification, and that's great, and that's very important work, but also it leaves outside trans lives and queer lives and their specific experience, which is most of the time actually uh, running away from their families and the societies that where they, they were raised. Can you describe what is it like for somebody when they first arrive in the U.S. and are detained? Well, um, from what I heard from our clients, since I was never detained, uh, I don't want to talk at their place. Detention is a very traumatic experience for most of our clients because they would encounter a lot of discrimination, a lot of 
sexual assault, shaming and verbal or physical violence from the guards, but also from the inmates or other detainees. So they would go through the immigration process during that time, which is also very, very stressful. We tried to help them finding um, free legal representation because without legal representation, it is extremely hard to win the case. And because also they don't have friends or family in the U.S. or even if they have Um, Because they are LGBTQ, they don't always want to be in touch with them. They have a lot of challenges to find sponsors and to have a sponsor, so somebody who would guarantee they will support you in the U.S. uh, with housing and finances and making sure that you will go to your court after release. It's really hard for them to be released, right? So we try to also do everything possible to find them sponsors. And also with people who have any medical conditions, it's extremely hard to get appropriate medical care. There is a lot of medical neglect. The nutrition is horrible. And because of the stress and multiple trauma from the country that they're coming from and from the tension, uh, people are getting sick, people are getting depressed. There is huge impact on mental health. A lot of our clients that are getting released are very depressed or have PTSD, anxiety. And then after release, um, being outside and trying to access all the services that they need, it's also a big struggle. A lot of them don't speak fluently English. In our case, when people are relocating to New York City, it takes them some time also to get used to the city, get used to um, the metro. There is not so many services for people who are not speaking English and lack of um, emotional support and lack of feeling of belonging definitely is something um, that is a big struggle, especially for folks who have a lot of mental health needs. Uh, I would say definitely the first months outside are also very challenging people are coming with literally only with clothes on their backs so they don't have any possessions they don't have phones they don't have clothes they don't have toiletries um they don't have shoes they i mean they have one pair of shoes but they really need to rebuild their lives from absolute scratch so that's the the struggle and then It takes also a long time. For example, even if the person won asylum, which is the best case scenario, very often they're getting released on parole or bond, which means they will wait for their work permit for many, many months, sometimes up to one year. And during this uh, one year, sometimes they are not even eligible for any benefits, which means they have to rely on food pantries and shelters. Once they can work, then it's also not very easy to find work. Very often also ICE is keeping their passport, so they don't have absolutely any identification. It's very hard for them to receive even New York City ID, which was supposed to help um, immigrants and folks who are undocumented, but because of the fact that detained people don't have any passport, any identification, photo identification, it is really hard for them to get even that kind of ID. So it's like a lot of bureaucratic and logistic struggles. So that's the 
that's the reality for the at least few first months. Wow, wow. I guess in your your experience as being undocumented, I would think that that you might be able to understand the the people that you're working with in a special way that that folks who haven't been detained or undocumented maybe couldn't. Mm, yeah, I definitely can understand the need of um, having support when you don't have uh, any friends or family in the country. It can be extremely lonely. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear how QDEP is trying to combat that isolation and help queer immigrants build friendships, communities, and stronger lives. Welcome back. I'm Monica Sandreski, and this is In Between Places. Today, we're talking with Jan Sanovich with the Queer Detainee Empowerment Project. QDEP offers support through legal services, counseling, healing workshops, and weekly support groups led by a therapist and a social worker. It also offers peer support. A couple of years ago, a group of people who had received services from QDEP in the past wanted to start up a sort of buddy program where they come alongside people who are just coming out of detention to walk that journey with them. They they appreciate it because, as I said, folks who are coming here, they don't have their communities, right? So they have to rebuild everything from scratch. And having um, people who are there for them and who can become their friends or their folks who care about them I think it's very important. And I think another positive thing about peer support is that we avoid power dynamic, right, with white U.S. citizens who is providing services, not knowing the experience, and then our clients being always in the position of person who is asking for help, right, or who, who has to rely on external agency, which might be difficult. And I think with peer support, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier also to be open and to let us know about their real needs because there is a lot of taboo around sexuality, around mental health, etc. And having a peer to talk to about those areas, I think it's, it's very helpful. What are some of the things people are hesitant to talk about? Well, definitely their past, definitely their um, traumas, and definitely their their need for mental health support because um, therapy is very often seen as something shameful, very often seen as a sign of weakness or, yeah, puts them in positions that shows their vulnerability, right? And then the other thing is sexuality and also how the culture around sex is different in the U.S. So having uh, somebody who went through this cultural shock makes it easier, right? So it's not just talking with the person who grew up here or who never had this experience. Like, is it things like sort of the overtness of American sexuality and social expectations that 
people might have or how they might be treated, those kinds of things? Mm, well, I think it's mostly around like the patterns in US, for example, applications like Grinder, the fact that PrEP is accessible here for everybody. For context, PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis is a prescription drug that's been shown to prevent someone from contracting HIV. New York State has been active in making sure that PrEP is more affordable. Also, the the fact that just the uh, awareness uh, around HIV and how the transmission looks like. I think that's, that's, that's the questions. I think they tried to figure it out at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. In the I first see. months. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think that anybody, I mean, it varies, right? But like looking for a partner in the first months, I don't think that's their priority. Sure. Can I ask, do you ever get um, discouraged? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very often. Yeah, it's uh, really exhausting and hard work. I don't get uh, discouraged regarding providing services to clients, or I don't have any existential crises around this part of work. The, I think the part that is the hardest, though, is to the like, constant worry about seeing how big is the need for services and resources and economic support and the lack of financial support to run the organization. Can I ask too, just personally, like within you, what keeps you going? I think the feeling of responsibility for people who are relying on our organization and our support and the fact that there is not as many organizations that could continue this work, especially on the East Coast. So if we would disappear, I think it would be hard for our present clients to, to find this kind of support. Yeah. And thank you for doing your work. It's important. Mm, yeah. What's one policy change, like either at the federal level or maybe at the New York state level, that you think needs to change? I think the one big policy change that would be great would be to eliminate uh, so-called 96 laws or IRA-IRA that were passed in 1996 by Bill Clinton, and they are at the root of criminalization of immigration, right? IRA-IRA is Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. What they change is the approach to immigration where before, for example, seasonal immigration was accepted by, uh, by U.S. government, whereas uh, after passing the 96 laws, that became illegal, right? So that became, for example, if you are once deported or you have a deportation order from U.S., you cannot for 10 years uh, right now after passing those laws, apply for any immigration benefits. So you're banned from U.S. for 10 years. That also was at the base of creating extensive detention center system, right? Or like elevating the numbers of 
folks who were at risk of imprisonment, right, incarceration. Before 96, detention centers were very few, and after 96, detention system became part of the prison industrial complex with the same patterns of private companies profiting from incarceration. And then another policy bill would be on the state level to stop expansion of detention centers, which means the bill that would prevent state of signing any new contracts with ICE and prevent state and local uh, counties or local governments to renewing the already existing ones. So that would be the path to close the detention centers in several years. And if those policies and those bills would pass in each state, then that would prevent ICE from expanding their detention centers. Jan Sanovich says until those rules are changed, until detention centers are closed and people who are LGBTQ and HIV positive are supported in a deep way, QDEP will continue to support them from detention through their experience trying to become established in the United States. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for another story of support and advocacy for people fleeing for their lives. We'll hear about a fellowship program providing sanctuary to writers, playwrights, and poets who are refugees. In Between Places is brought to you by the Center for Transformative Action, an affiliate of Cornell University. If you've got an idea for innovative social change, reach out. We cannot wait to hear from you. Contact us at centerfortransformativeaction.org. In Between Places is written, edited, and produced by Monica Sandreski. Special thanks to Cornell Media Relations for production assistance. Music today by Siddhartha and SRO. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.